It's even the history of Chassidim. Not everyone stayed within a very narrow frame. These radical ideas of Tanya, right. um, of individuality, it's got the potential to be very disruptive. Chabad not Pinimis. That's what we're trying to get people to do. And all of a sudden, someone says, okay, I'm going to be a Pinimi. I'm going to be just like my, I'm going to only do, I'm going to be me. Right. And then everyone, oh no, don't. <laughs> we didn't mean, we didn't mean so much. Welcome to Homesick for Lubavitch, a podcast where we explore Lubavitch identity in the year 2023. My name is Ben Siafson, and I will be your host. Let's begin. Alrighty, um, this is very exciting for me. This is uh, very exciting for Homesick for Lubavitch. Homesick for Lubavitch is going international. Um, the epidemic has now become a pandemic. It's official. So um, I'm here with Rabbi Reuben Lee in Cambridge. Uh, it's not part of London, Cambridge, United Kingdom. It's its own nice little beautiful city, north, two hours north of London. It's actually at Cambridge University. And the story behind this trip is that I bought this book that was printed by Bloomsbury Press, a book by Reuben Lee. And the book was so expensive that I found out later it included a ticket to England. <laughs> but the bad news is, is that all those tickets have been used up, so now you just buy the book by itself. But um, kidding aside, um, I really wanted to speak to Reuven about both what he wrote in his book, but a lot of the ideas and the experiences behind the book, behind the book. So um, one of the things that you spoke about in the book that was really, really beautiful was your relationship with Rabbi Greenglass in Montreal. And very touching was how you described how Rabbi Greenglass wrote down the entire Hemshech of Renat before he ran away from Atvatsk. I'd like you to tell that story, but I think I think maybe first give a little bit of a background of how you ended up in Montreal in the first place. Where do you come from? Whence does your British accent originate? And uh, we'll get going. Okay. Uh, just one, one, one short disclaimer for those watching. There is a bottle of L'chaim on the table, and that's not something common to the podcast. Um on purpose, it's usually usually stay away from the need for l'chaim or anything that would associate would be associated with that. But tonight is Fart Chav Kislev, and uh, we felt that it made sense to have a shtickle fabrenian. So let's start with the l'chaim. So thank you very much for coming all the way. Um, Pleasure. Thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Um, one of your dedicated listeners. Um, oh, so no. I consider it an honor. Oh, no. And also slightly uh, nerve-wracking to become exposed in this way to uh, a wider audience. Um, so, yeah, so where did it all start? I'm, I grew up in a suburb of London called Ilford, which technically is part of the county of Essex. And at a young age, I became Balchuva. I was about 11 years old. You or your whole family? Myself, individually. Mm. Um, 
some members of my family later also became Balichuba, but um, at the time it was uh, a personal choice. And through a whole string of events, it was fortunate that I was able to be by the Rebbe for, before my Bar Mitzvah um, in Toshinam base, which was a transformative moment. For your Bar Mitzvah or before your Just Bar Mitzvah? Just before. I went a couple of weeks before my Bar Mitzvah. So it was like a trip yeah, a, a to prepare trip. for your Bar Mitzvah? Yeah, a Bar Mitzvah trip. And that happened to be Nunbez? That was, yeah, Nunbez. Chesh for Nunbez. Wow. Um, and at 16, I went to Yeshiva. So I was in a regular local school, um, a state school. Um, and I managed to uh, persuade my parents to let me uh, give up on a... Uh, give up on all the trappings that come with being in the school and going through that trajectory. And I went to Manchester for a couple of years. And then from Manchester, I went to Montreal for another couple of years. Mm-hmm. So I did four years of Zal before going on Schlichus New Haven. So I'm 70, marriage, Schlichus. Oh, she also did Schlichus New Haven. You're, yeah. the, you're the second alum on the podcast. Oh, because who else? Marshall Leib also. Oh, okay. Yeah. He, yeah, he was after me, I think. Yeah. Uh, he's the year after me, I think. Wow, look at that. Um, yeah, so I was in Montreal. Um, I, I, I've been trying to think how I ended up in Montreal because none of the none of my class in Manchester were going. I went pretty much by myself. But, but before you go there, why don't you just? I, I don't know if you want to turn if we want to make this whole conversation about about your origin story. But I think it is important. I think it will be important for later on. Why is an eleven year old in Ilford, uh, England? Ilford, you said right. Mm-hmm. Why does an eleven year old get interested in Yiddishkeit and Lubavitch in particular? Um, it's pretty hard to analyze an 11-year-old. Sure. Um, and to remember even. Um, right. It seemed very normal and natural at the time. Um, I'm not I'm not entirely sure what the thought processes were. Your parents were at all traditional? or Yeah, yeah, traditional. I went to a Jewish day school. Right, okay. So, and my teacher was a Lubavitcher. I see. Um, and, I mean, the sort of the, the spark that triggered everything. We were we were a very good class. A lot of my class became Balichuba, mm. not through Lubavitch necessarily, but we were a very uh, my class, the class above and class below me. That those years in the school were very um, I don't know successful, if you want to call it that, um, of kids coming through, um, becoming much more interested in Yiddishkeit. Um, we had a few, a couple of Lubavitch teachers in the school, and uh, they had a big impact. And we had like sort of a because we were doing so well, we had an advanced class. Like we we had a special class for the advanced students, mm-hmm. um, like 10, 11 year olds. We were learning Chumash Rashi. We were doing things that day school kids weren't doing. We were learning with Rashi script and everything. We were we were a little bit more right. into things. And we had like a end of year Shabbaton. And I remember on the on the coach, we went to Bournemouth for Shabbaton. And on the, the coach home, with the Dalpravages or nothing to no, do with Lubavitch? Nothing to do with Lubavitch. Right. Um, and my my teacher came to like the back of the bus where we were all hanging out and said, I, I set you a challenge to try and keep Shabbos this coming week the same way you did this week. This is a Lubavitcher yeah. teacher. Do you want to say his name? Yeah, sure. Uh, Rabbi Zali Unstorfer, who I'm eternally grateful for. Uh, he lives in London today? He now lives in, uh, yeah, Northwest London. Hmm. And so that's what the challenge he set to us. To a few mm. of the kids. And as I say, quite a lot of the kids became Malichu. So I remember coming home. So we, we used to always have like a challah Friday night. Right. We'd have like one challah. So I had to make get my mother to buy two challahs. Um, we'd have kiddush and, and stuff. And it just meant like not watching TV that Shabbos and going right. to shul. Just doing a, a bunch of things that um, 
adjusting and adapting. Right. And I liked it. And I continued. And we had a, when we finished school, we continued having a shir with our own store in his house, Shigamara. Hmm. So it was a whole bunch of kids that came together. We had a Shigamara in his house. Wow. Um, I remember um, we had a Shabbatan in his house. This is one of my, a very strong memory. And it was during Shlasat Tzadik. And he made an effort to teach us all Shuvah. The, the, the Nidina Shuvah. So we all had like Sidurim and, and Tehillim's out. And he's like teaching us the words. And he's getting very excited. And, and just the Chayas um, about Shuvah mm. was, was very, uh, I don't know, it's just inspiring. I also went to Gan Yisrael. Hey, so Gan Yisrael was also very inspiring. That too. wasn't Chavza, That was before Chavzah no? Yeah, yeah. That was before Chavzah That was the year. Before? Yeah. And you went to Gan Yisrael here? No, no, in Ganyus, yeah, in Ganyusol overnight camp was also very um, here in England. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was also we had a was a camp reunion. I remember camp reunion. This was already after after my bar mitzvah, so right. this was um, uh, a winter camp reunion in Manchester, Toshinum Base. Wow, um, the atmosphere it was, it was very it was very special. So I, I was already I was already in by then. But. No, I, look, I, I don't I don't think it, it makes sense to necessarily dwell on this for too long. Um, but you know, just what strikes me right away is is you know that 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 story, that recurring theme of the teacher and the child, and it's painstaking work. Like it's it's there's no event with a lot of people. You know, it's, it's like there's one 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 teacher and one individual, but it's also so often the most enduring. Oh yeah, and like the amount of the amount of even today that are shluchim or you know, very, very devoted Lubavitchers, very proud Lubavitchers that were literally just a student of a teacher who cared. Uh, it's just such an amazing story. I mean, it's an amazing thing to think about. So, so yeah, so, so, so you were, so you were kind of on your way. You one thing led to another, and then eventually your parents realized they lost you. <laughs> right? No, it was difficult. It was secondary school I went to, um, uh, sort of a non-Jewish school. I understand, but the, the, so the goal was, was to eventually college. the goal was eventually for you to go to college. I imagine. Yeah, yeah. So eventually, sure. they they realized, okay, they lost you. You're off to Montreal. Right. So first to Manchester, then off to Manchester. Montreal. Um, right. And yeah, Montreal was a. I don't. Know, Montreal for me, I mean, I feel anyone who knows me is watching or listening this. They're gonna just like laugh, but I I have a very romantic view of Montreal. It, it did something for me. Don't go back, is my suggestion. I actually was there a few weeks ago. <laughs> I went back for the first time in 20 years. Um, we'll get, we'll get anyway. to that in a second. It's still special. Okay. Like, you know, everyone warned me, says, it's not like it used to be. <laughs> no, in, in general, going like revisiting romantic uh, sure, no, years of, sure. your, of your youth are, is always dangerous. But yeah, so, so go ahead. So there was a lot of characters in Montreal that really... Um, really affected the way I, th- I mean, I, you know, I'd, I'd had this background, I'd been to the Rebbe, so I had like sort of at least like that type of, I wasn't like a fresh vulture that didn't have any right. awareness. And by uh, the time you get to Montreal, it's already after Gimel Thomas? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We right. were the... Because um, well, you had been through the whole high school. Right, yeah, right, so right, sure. I went to Montreal in 97. Right, right, a few years after Gimel Thomas, okay. And yeah, and I got to meet and engage with Revolve Greenglass. And he took a liking to me. I, he... I was uh, I was like a shtickle masharis. He, I helped him walk back some forty yeshiva. He was slippery with the ice, and right. he just he was just very 
kind, generous, um, and and loving and caring, very caring. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not saying I mean, a lot of the other people in that hollow were also. I'm just they, we're focusing in on that relationship, mm-hmm. and I just found him to be um, such a unique type of character. He had such first of all, he had such personality mm. and such individuality. The way he dressed, you know, like he didn't lose his Polishness, you know, or we call that his Polish guy. Like he was, he was still very much, you know, an outsider, if you know what I mean, but mm. such an insider, you know, like he, mm. he was, the, he was the real deal. He was like, uh, you know, so engaged with the rabbit, such a close relationship, but there was a certain, you know, he retained his personality, his individuality. It wasn't the version of Lubavitch, which um, so many people talk about, which is like sort of this absolute Kabbalah cell to the point of the erasure of self. Hmm. It was a, a Kabbalah's Earl, which was um, honest about who he was, what his personality was like. And it was utilized. And he, I mean, he was a totally Ibergegeben. It wasn't like a lack of Ibergegebenkeit. Right. But it was... It was in a particular. It wasn't in a, you know, in a very. It wasn't in a narrow style. He had a certain blade cook. When it came to sort of the types of nigunim he would sing, or the types of uh, stories he would tell, or just, um, you know, how he functioned as a chassid was um, very attractive. Right. It's almost like there's there's kabbalah soil as as a as an idea, and then there's kabbalah soil as a demeanor. Right. It's like two very different things. Like. How many people are happy in concept, <laughs> right? But not very happy in demeanor. And it's like, you know, like that guy who like every time you see them, they have to give like this goofy smile because they're happy. Right. And it's like, yeah, but that, that doesn't that doesn't resonate, man. It doesn't feel real. I mean, he was a real balavid. I mean, he was a balustorim. He right. endured tremendous suffering over his life. Always, always besimcha. Um, working on himself. Um Yanni just showed me a lot of lot of attention, um, and I appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Um, so one day I was walking him home, and he invited me into the, into his uh, into his into his house, and he picks off the shelf this like little booklet, um, and in it he has the the first four and a half my morim of Ranat. So he got to the middle of Lulavarava before yeah, they had to leave in the morning. Right. Um, and he described how, like, you know, he knew they were going to leave and he didn't want to go without chassidus. He needed to have, he felt like, he, and so he started writing out the mind. And so just when I was in Montreal. But one second, one second, because I, I know I mentioned it earlier, but set the table a little bit. He was in the Tvatsky Shiva, right, right in Poland, when the Nazis came into Poland and they all basically escaped to Shanghai, right? Well, eventually. To Japan, Japan through, and then Vilna. Vilna. Yeah, they, but that's when they started escaping, eventually ending up in Shanghai, right? Yeah. How long had he been in Lubavitch at that time? He, I don't know. I don't know the history. I'm going to look right. up in the books. He probably came to Lubavitch in the what, Tzadik Dalet, Tzadik Hay. So not that long before. Yeah. He was, he was already five no, years. No, I think it's important to the story, not just like to be like pedantic. It's just like, I think it's important to the story. Like here's a guy who... Maybe later. In a way, obviously different, but in a way kind of like... Went through a similar journey as you did, maybe not as extreme, but also like came to it from the outside. And maybe. I think it's just important to point out. Um, talk about a cliffhanger ending up and ending in middle of the over for five years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and so he showed it to me, and 
one of the beautiful things about this little thing, and, and he showed me a few of his other books you see as well, like he was very artistic. Mm. And so between the mimer, he would do a very like creative sort of divider mm. um, as part of his just sort of artistic expression. This is like the bombs, are, the, wow. the, it's being bombed and everything, wow. but he still, he still had time to do a little what bit a of a artistic expression. And so when I was just now in Montreal, I was, I've been nudging um, his son-in-law for a while. I want to, I didn't know if I made this whole story up. Right. Know, sometimes you, you think, I'm, I'm just like a fan, fantasy. Right. I could have made this whole thing up. Because I kept asking and he's like, I don't remember where this is and stuff. And he event, and so when I went into Montreal, I pushed him a bit further and he found it. He sent me a pictures, picture. And it was as I remembered it. So wow. I, I thought at least I wasn't uh, Beautiful. just making up stories. Why don't, why don't they publish it, like, the picture? I mean, I guess it's not that interesting. Like, it's the same mimer that everyone sees, but it would be interesting to see, like, that flourish. And what a great story. I'll show you some pictures after. What a great story. I mean, just, I mean, like, when do you see what's precious to someone? Mm. Like, when they stay up the night before they're about to escape and run for their lives. It's like, what do I need to take? Like, what would I take if I had to leave everything behind? What would I take? I have no idea. I'm trying to think right now. It's like, like that disturbing story of Khan Mirazov. Which is? When there was the fire. Right. Saving the Ksavim. Right. Or his kid. <laughs> okay, I mean, so, so, so that, so that, that, <laughs> you know, let, let's, leave, let's leave that macabre, um, you know, dilemma aside. Uh, yeah, I, I, I most probably, not most probably, I most definitely would, would take my child first. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, I mean. Like, you passed that test with flying colors. Let, let's also be honest. Nobody like there. There are too many svarim printed as it is. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> there are not enough kids. Like let's let's get real. Um, but I'm just I'm just trying to think. Like, what would I take? What would be my like? Well, isn't it, isn't I, it the same that I don't know if you're familiar with Desert Island Discs? This sort of famous radio show in the UK no, where they take, they they have a they bring on a celebrity or someone of public interest and they have this thing if you were uh, end up on a desert island right. which seven songs are you going to take with you and so they they describe seven songs that are meaningful to them and they explain why and it's a way of telling the story of their life right and then at the end they have to sort of say okay um you have to break it down to just one song right you know and what is the quintessential quintessential song of your life right um, if you only if you're going to be on the desert island and that's all you're going to have for the rest right. of your life, which right. one are you going to pick? Which nigga are you going to pick? <laughs> right, right. I mean, uh, is it the same? I guess it's the same to 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 a large extent for sure. But this this has the added the added urgency and the added like realness of like a young boy, you know, hoping it wasn't they were lucky to get out at all. Many most people didn't get out. It was like a whole story. I don't know the whole history, but they were lucky to get out and like. Poland was utter, utter chaos. Nobody expected... I mean, they went first to, 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 to Warsaw. They went to Warsaw first to see the Friedrich Rebbe before they left. Right. So they had to, like, get into the crazy situation in Warsaw. And... The... Oh, they left before the Friedrich Rebbe was rescued? Yeah. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. I guess that's how they got out. One of the other things they did on the night before was they were boxing up all the Ksavim and, and Svarim, which ended up later coming. The Friedrich Rebbe's... Yeah, so, which ended up getting taken by the Nazis and then taken by the Soviets. And stuff. I mean, that that whole story is just yeah. That's that's for another episode with somebody with a lot of guts, but um, <laughs> and somebody who knows what happened. But yeah, I mean, it's just like well, I'm just, yeah. I guess I guess I guess um, I'll think about it and get back to everybody on the next episode. What would what would you write 
what would you like record if you if you had if you like if you knew you have you have only six hours because what's also interesting about that story is that he had like six seven hours to get his stuff together right so you have limited time you have limited resources what do you take with you i mean that's what's so special for me what was impactful about the story is how it gave me a completely new sense of priorities right about the role that chassidus plays in a person's life mm. that it's it's not just this sort of nice additional adornment to the mm. way you are but it's mm. something that is so fundamental mm. that the you know like the idea of being on the road for, for such a long time mm. um and detached from those Asias Arav and the Asias Aksav, just just like that would, that's a shocking sort mm. of future to think of. Mm. Um, and I, it, you know, it made me seriously think in a way that I'd never done before. And uh, you know about the the importance of Chassidus and 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 how to sort of like treat this thing. You know, I, I found it interesting. I enjoy Chassidus, and it, so it was meaningful to me. You know, I mean, I, I'd made significant changes in my life because I, I found Hasidus attractive. But there was still a way in which it can just be compartmentalized as part of your broader, right. uh, just trying to, just trying to um, indulge yourself in a right. way, like being the best type of person you want to be, but it's all about who you want to be. Right. It's, it's not seeing It's just Hasidus. a safer, it's just a safer at the end of the day, right? That's how you say, it's just a safer. Just another... Even if it's more than that, but it's a safer that's, you know, that, I'm. Uh, it's it's all about how how this safer can improve, enhance my life. Uh-huh. Whereas I, what I got from this is that there's not even the cheshbon. Right. You're not considering. It's just about this is this is who I am. Right. This is me. Right. I mean, I'm not leaving without myself. So why am I going to leave without the chesedus? Hmm. Um, yeah, I have to tell that you. Made me rethink. Yeah, I mean, I have to tell you when when I read that story in your book, it, it like it gave me goosebumps. It, it, it like reframed the whole thing for me. Um, did I start learning a mimer right after that? <laughs> no, no, I didn't. I have learned a little bit of Renat since then, but no, it's just it's it's what a story. So 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 you so you this this Rabbi Greenglass leaves a leaves a very large um, imprint on your life, not just mm-hmm. with that one story, but in general the relationship that you had with him. Um. I mean, I don't know if you want to speak more about your time in Montreal, or we can just go, like, using that as a background. Well, I think the relevant aspect, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure exactly where, where we're going to end up. I think the relevant... Nobody knows. <laughs> Nobody knows. That's the beauty. I think the relevant, the strong relevant component of Montreal was I got to see a whole range of Hasidic characters. Mm. Um and what was very prominent in all of their lives was the seriousness. They were um, constantly trying to figure out the best way to be a chassid. And they were coming up with different things. They weren't all doing the same thing. They weren't coming up with the same answers. But there was a certain sense of struggle. Right. But not in a, not in a negative way, but like um, engaged. Right. People that were very engaged. Right. I'm not saying the whole of Montreal was very engaged, but the people that I was right. um, impressed with and I saw that as like a, a model. Do you have any examples besides Rabbi Greenglass? So there's Rabbi Greenglass and, and Rabbi Gerari. 
Rabbi Gerari, I found to be a fascinating character. Still is. I I just focus on time. He's I spent some time with him just recently. The Mashpian Manchu, Rabbi Gerari. He um just I mean his uh struggle and his yearning to get to the depth of the meaning of a piece of chassidus was you know inspiring, mm-hmm. and in a way it's like it's it's not even about like always figuring it out. It's just being so engrossed and engaged, which was, uh, you know, uh, a guide. I, I saw that as a as a model that the goal is not to sort of like make sure everything makes sense at the end. Mm-hmm. The goal is to sort of go deeper and deeper and deeper. So once you've figured something out, that's just a, a platform to show how there's actually a better understanding. Every understanding is a, a means to get to a better understanding. Right. And that was very impactful. Rebel Mochkin was a... I mean, I remember a particular Fabrengen that, you know, yeah, okay, so I'd, I'd been by the Rebbe. So I, I, have a, I had a Muslim, but his gosh, I was still a kid. When I went to the Rebbe, I was before Bar Mitzvah, so it was, I was still childish. I mean, I, I think I got the, the etzem of what it means to be a chassid. I mean, I, I was by the Rebbe, so I, 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 you know, I got that whether I liked it or not. Um, but the processing and the, the hergation, the, what it means to be a chassid, how to feel those, what that looks like, the expression of those feelings. Um, he, re- I, you know, I think it was, it, I got a real sense of, of a completely new level of Iskashra's um, relationship um, and something that is personal. You know, he was a Bakri in the Yuds. These are people who had personal relationships with their Emma. And just vicariously, in a way, seeing how that played out in Fabrengans and what that meant to them hmm. um, was very instructive. Um, you know, it's not like a, I'm an embodiment of any of those things, but I have a, I feel like I, I gained a, um, a vocabulary, right. a glossary, maybe even, right. of these, what these words mean. Right. You know, if I was to end up in a good place, a lot of it would be um, shaped by, um, by that exposure that I had there. Sure. And you said also earlier, you were talking about Rabbi Nassim Garari also? Yeah, so we learning this with... Reb Nassim um, was an eye-opener. Right. Um, he was a businessman. He was a businessman. For, for those who don't know, just to describe him a little bit. Because there's the famous Rabbi Gerard was a in the yeshiva. Yeah, so this is... Um, this is his uncle, no. No, this is his cousin. This is his cousin. So Reb Nassim was a businessman. We used to see him go to the train station every day carrying his uh, his briefcase. Right. Um, very put together. You know. Right. And then we, we managed to arrange... His grandson was in yeshiva with us, so he was able to arrange for us to be able to... Who, um, oh, Maishi? Yeah. Maishi Gwari and Tom's River? No, Maishi Kassam. Oh, Maishi Kassam. I know him too, yeah. So a group of us went and met with him. It wasn't for long, and we used to go Friday night in the winter, so we had a lot of time after after the meal, and we'd spend a good two, something, even longer hours sitting there learning. And to this day... I don't think I've ever had a more intense intellectual experience than sitting at that table those Friday nights. And we're sitting in Cambridge here. Yeah. I'm just, the, 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 first of all, his teaching style was unique. He would, we'd read a, make someone read a passage from the Maimon. Right. And then he'd go around the table asking everyone to explain it. Right. And so you knew it was going to come to you. You don't look like an idiot. So you sort of, yeah. you're racking your, you, you hope you're not the first guy. Right. So you're the first guy to say something, and you're, you don't know what he's talking about. So it's like, 
So another one was like, mm, okay, goes around. And you knew you, you had to like perform at your best. Your, your, your brain is now in hyper mode. Right. Just not embarrass you. It's like in front of your friends and everything. Right. Even, even you want to impress him as well. Imagine right. you could say something and another one would say, oh, right. good to chat. So you're working so, so hard. And then after he goes around the whole table, he then gives the chat, explains it. But in the meantime, you've exhausted all of your intellectual capabilities. And you've become like a clean mukhsha because every angle has now been exhausted right. from the whole table. And then like a new air comes in. Right. <laughs> and it was, and it was just, you felt uh, enriched, enlivened. Sure. To concentrate for two hours on a Friday night when you exhaust, you probably probably the whole Thursday night as well. Right. You, you weren't in a good space physically, but the, it was so good that it wasn't like you were tired or falling asleep. It, and I remember when so you come out of Montreal in the snow, and like we've been talking for two and a half hours about Atsilus. And you walk out, it like it looks like a winter wonderland. Right. And you're like, you feel like you're floating. Like I'm saying, it's like, am I in Atsilus? It's like it was that type of arresting experience. Hmm. Um yeah, that's uh, it gave me an inkling. Um probably at the time you're an arrogant bacher, you don't right. you, you think this is normal, right? This is this is where I belong, this is how life is. Right. Um you don't have that sort of um, foresight to think, wow, this is going to be a right. foundation for the rest of my life. But, right. um, you know, I think back, it, it, it gave me a sense of, first of all, these different types of chassidim, but the common denominator of all of them was, and all of their diversity in the way they, ex they experienced being a chassid was grounded in chassidim. Right. And there's, there's none of this fluff. If you're not learning chassidim, then the whole, you know, like you, you've got nothing to talk about. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that you've just from that experience that that just from the description of Montreal that you're telling me that I'm that I'm thinking about. Um, I mean, the the last thing you were talking about, Nasingari's class. You know, there's there's this thing of there's this thing about mastery that is at once so humbling to witness, because if you're not a master, you recognize that you're not very quickly. But it's also, in a way, what's most enticing. Even though it humbles you and sometimes humiliates you, it entices you to, like, wait, if this guy can be a master, maybe I can be too. Like, we have this kind of... It's a, it's, it's a, I think it's like a kind of a cultural thing around the world today where, like, we're scared to make students feel inadequate or make people feel inadequate. So everything's kind of dumbed down and softened and, like... You know, let's let, let's make sure that nobody feels out of place. And I, look, I understand there are sensitivities, and and it's wrong for a child to go through school always feeling like it's over their head. I get it, but you wonder at what cost, right? Like, I'll give you an example from like a different discipline that just I think makes it a little bit more mukhsistic, like what you just said. Although maybe you don't even need to add; it seems pretty self-evident what you're saying, but pretty pretty well described. But a, f a friend invited me the past couple of weeks to come to a jiu-jitsu class. You know, and the jiu-jitsu class is being led by a fellow who's been doing jiu-jitsu for, I don't know, 30 some years, a master. You know, you call him sensei, like, this guy's a master. At the end of the hour and a half or so, the last 20 minutes is basically, everybody gets a chance to what they call roll with the sensei. And he's at, like, he's operating at 10, 20%. 
and you can't lay a glove on him. And the second he decides it's over, he has you in an arm bar. He could he could kill you, literally. He, has, he can kill you in multiple ways. And when you're fighting with him, you're like, oh, my God. Like, I'm literally, like, it's humiliating. Not just because other people are seeing you being beaten up. just humiliating when you realize, like, like there's this, there's this, there's this thing where like this guy is literally light years ahead of you. His thirty years of work has put him in a place that you are just unfathomably behind. But it's interesting that the feeling that I got and everybody else I got was not like brokenness. It was right. like an excitement, like you said, a resting. Like, look at this thing that you could possibly get up to if you put yourself to it. Okay, probably won't, but it's like. It, it, there's something alluring about something like that, and that's what that's the thing that came to me. We talked about Nelson Garari, where like, you know, on one hand you felt like, you know, you're in yeshiva maybe you're learning a mimer and you understood the mimer and you feel like a hot shot. Look, like I'm the guy that people come to ask me what this means, right? Like I, I'm a pesadus, and I come to this guy's house and he wipes the floor with me. But instead of making you feel like an idiot, or instead of like telling you, like instead of making you close a book, it makes you open the book even more, right? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's the hafla. You sort of get a hafla, the wonderment right. of like where the possibilities. Like my, like the, the, the ceiling of my intellectual world right. was just blown open. Right. And that was just, you know, fascinating. Right. But I think what you were saying made me think of like the difference between atzvus and mirirus. Right. Like it's, in a way it could be the same feeling but it's, the, it's how you react to that feeling. Right. Is it inspiring? Is it motivating? Right. Or is it going to be something that's going to drag you down? Right. And I think there's different personality types. Not everyone is up for that type of encounter. Um, it just happened to work for me. Yeah, if it's possible. It's possible that it's your, it's your, it's your personality. But I, I do feel like, you know, in, in a time where it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? People, people... We, we decide that young people or people in general don't want to work hard at a discipline for a, for, a, for a long amount of time. Therefore, they're going to be turned off by something that needs a long amount of time. Therefore, we're not going to show them that thing in the first place. Therefore, they're not interested. Yeah. <laughs> you see what I'm they never saw it. Like, like, they're, like, and what is chassidus if not a decision to choose a certain preoccupation and develop a mastery over it? I mean, you say I'm, I, I, I'm, I'd push back on the idea of a mastery. It's about, I think it's more about um, just having a degree of hence and feast in the base I'm at. You know, like just to not be a foreigner. I don't, I don't know, mastery is already. No, maybe... no, but mastery doesn't mean that you're done. Like this, this, this guy, this guy in jujitsu, he, 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 he practices three hours a day. Right. The, the the more they know, the more they know they don't know. But right. but by mastery, okay, right. mastery is a proficiency that you kind of proficiency. I like it. yeah, a proficiency. But I think the word mastery, like master, is like someone who's ahead of you in a very obvious, clear no, it's way. It's always going to be relative. You're going to be ahead of someone. But in a very you know, clear, obvious way. You might not know Gimel Dalit, but you know more than someone else. So you are a mastery of Alephas. Okay, look, I, I, I'm, not trying, a, I'm not trying to separate. Mastery implies, I think, a little bit too much of a. Uh, you know, you're on top of it. Ah, uh, okay, that's not what I meant. Okay, uh, fair enough, though. But okay. a proficiency, a strong proficiency. Uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. A, mas a mastery to me describes someone who 
who when you look at when you look at someone who has mastered the art of tailoring or has mastered the art of filmmaking or like these people it, they don't feel like they're done that's what they, they keep on coming back for more so why so why are they called a master at it it just seems that at at some point there is a there, there is an under, there, there there is a level where you reach where where you are where where your investment is undeniable. Right. And, that's, that's the clean point. And it requires, and you realize that what that requires is investment. So something Rebbe Jameer told me that I would just, it just I mean, it shocked me. Um, he, when he was a Bacha, he wanted to learn with his, with his uncle, Rebbe Meshach Garari. Right. So he went to Eretz for a year. And he used to go and learn with his uncle. His right. uncle was a businessman, just like Renasson. Right. What was the Seder? He would meet, he would they would meet up three times a week, twice in the week, once on Shabbos. Each time they'd sit for three hours. Wow. I mean, like, who does that? Like, that... But you know how much... Do what, you, I mean, why would you even do that for your nephew? Like, what, do you, what, do you, what is going on? What is, what is the context where that makes sense? It makes sense... I mean, for them, I don't think that was strange. I don't think they would think, we're going to do something, like, really cool. We're going to sit in the right. for nine hours each week for a whole year. And, like, no, this is a serious... You know, you're not gonna. It's but, not but a that, game. It's not but, like. A... But you ask who does that? Everybody who does jujitsu does that. I, just for just be I clear, agree. I don't do it. I don't do jujitsu, but not yet, at least. But I'm just saying, like, that's right. The people who go to the gym, the people who do all any, any people who learn a language, they're spending hours and hours and hours. Right, right. It's a serious, engaged activity. Right. So this is not something you sort of tick a box and you and you do before davening every day. Right. Just to sort of feel like you've done this. It's a, it's an ambition. It's a project. It's there's a lot to get through, um, and there's even it's not about even about comes. It's just about beichus. How much you can challenge yourself, and, and and you know the goal is to really transform the way you think, the way you feel, the way you experience life. Right, and that is a full body experience. It's a whole. Right, and it requires thinking. It requires it requires reading stuff, but it more of it is about adapting. Grappling, yeah. fa failing, failing, flailing, embarrassing yourself, is it, is it, is making it, mistakes. But the question you have to ask yourself, I think, is, is this going to be part of my, is this a project of my life? Right. Do I take this seriously? Is this, is this what I'm, is this what I cook in? This is what I'm, I care yeah. about. And I think I was fortunate to be exposed by people who were like that. Right. And it gave me, uh, it gave me a model of what that might look like mm. if I tried it's it's so powerful, yeah. Because it, it's so, like the example. It's not to take anything away from Rabbi Greenglass or Rabbi Shemir Garari. Like that's clearly not the point here. Rabbi Muchkin, but like there's something about the fact that he said, and you like you were mad shit that like Nelson Garari was a businessman. His father, Rabbi Garari, was also a businessman. It's like what's the difference? Like it's because. Amashpia, we kind of assume, yeah, that's his job. That's what he's paid to do. So that's what he does, right? Whereas a businessman, it's like, like, wait a second, he's not paid to do this. He also he's paid to do something else. So like he's carving out private time, right? Even if the mashpia also carves out private time, but that's just why it's sticking in our in, in the conversation. He's not a professional Jew. Right, he's not a professional Jew, and it's like it's like it's like wait a second. So this is something that we that we that we do outside of the job. Or outside of the kind of um, practice of being a Lubavitcher, like you learn chassidus before davening for a half hour or something, which I'm not trying to take away from that. You it's know, great. beautiful. If, if that works for you, 
more power to you. But it's the same thing between a guy who does jujitsu two hours. Like I, I had friends, so I went to the jujitsu class, and I'm using this as a muscle. I'm, I'm not. I haven't done any of it to like talk about it. But I'm using it for jujitsu. No, not not yet, <laughs> not yet. But I'm just saying, like, so I went to this class, and I'm like, okay, I stink at this. Like, how do I get going? And I asked a couple of friends who are much deeper into it, and they're like, okay. You basically need to go two, three times a week for three hours. And after six months, you won't feel like a total fool. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so, like, learning so this a half hour a week before davening, yeah, beautiful. I'm saying, like, it's better than nothing, like, to use that very, right. you know, ill-begotten phrase. But it's not a plan. It's not a plan, and it's also not the same as really taking it seriously. Like, don't confuse the two. And... That kind of leads me to the main point that I got out of your whole Montreal experience, which I think will lead very nicely into the next part of our conversation, which is something that I've thought for so long is, like, yeshivas are so important, right? There's no question about it. Um, And there's no way that you can really avoid the fact that yeshiva is ultimately dominated by the majority of the people in the yeshiva, which is Bachrim at that age. So... There's a Bachrim and there's a small number, relatively speaking, of Danhala. But in many ways, the atmosphere is dominated by 18-year-olds, which, okay, we were all 18, so we can make fun of them. Like, they're 18. <laughs> I was also 18. You were 18 and so on. But there's something about the way you're describing Montreal where you saw a mature adult milieu around the yeshiva. And maybe they, some of them were in the yeshiva also, but there was also outside the yeshiva. And then the inside the yeshiva is interacting with outside the yeshiva. I'm sure there were Fabrians where there's like a kind of bleed between the mm-hmm. two. And what that does, and I think you even mentioned it, what that does is it teaches you that it doesn't end when you leave these doors. Right? And that's, I mean, I, I hate to say, I feel like that's something that that's, that's missing today. And it's certainly something that I felt when I was in yeshiva. It's like, I would always say in yeshiva, like, it's important for the mashpia to talk to us or to talk when I was a shliach, so I was kind of looking at it from the side. It's important for the mashpia to talk to the bachrim, bachses, but you know what's even more important? For the bachrim to see the two mashpiyam talking to each other, bachses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right? yeah. Right? No, I see that. And I, if we're going to then move on to sort of, you know, the experience outside of each other, um, the life, um, it took me a while to adapt. Um, and... I think especially when you're on shlichus, everything is for the shlichus. So it's like normal nas the lamid, right? Right. Everything you're learning is how, you know, like the maggot, everything he learns, he thinks all oh, that will be good for the drasha and stuff. So you're learning in the context of what you're going to teach. Right. And so you then lose your own sort of projects. Right. And, and you can become stale. Right. Because it's, uh, you're disconnected from the material. Um, and this wasn't just in chassidus, in general, in learning. Um, I felt, um, especially in a place like Cambridge, which is, you know, everyone's studying, everyone's quite scholarly. Right. There's a scholarly environment, and I'm. I didn't feel scholarly. I felt. I felt jealous. I was like these people are sitting in libraries right. for hours on end, reading books, thinking about ideas, writing essays and stuff, doing stuff that I find stimulating. Right. And I'm like organizing Purim parties, right. which were great, and I, I. I don't resent it or regret it, but there was a there was a part of my life that wasn't being um, activated and and mm. um, st- and um, you know appreciated utilized so i I remember i i i I remember the moment where i sort of said um it was coming up to pesach and i was like i'm going to spend the next month preparing for pesach and all that means i said like it's ridiculous 
Pesach will happen however much I prepare for it. I'm going to take a Gvurus Hashem, the Maral, mm-hmm. and I'm going to spend two hours a day learning Gvurus Hashem. That's on the God or that's on the Supertismus? That's on the God, isn't yeah. it? On the God, yeah. So, and I just sort of, I would, I, I made a Kfirs, I'd go out to a coffee shop, Gvurus Hashem, and I would just engage in something I'd never read before. I mean, I read the Hakdama because of the Hakdama about Posh Vitach right. that was connected to Chassidus. But I just thought, you know what, I'm going to just broaden my horizons, right. read a new book. Everyone talks about the Maral, I never really engaged with it. Um, right. And that, that sort of like sparked this like whole new thing. Yeah, I, and actually, if I'm engaged intellectually in, in, in things, I actually became, I think, a more interesting person, oh. Shlichus-wise. So I didn't have to like prepare a Sikha before an event or right. before a Shabbos meal. Because right. I've been spending the whole week thinking about ideas and stuff right. like that. And so it, it just sort of, you know, Neglis Chachma, it spilled out. If you become engaged in learning, right. then your, 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 your small talk becomes elevated, enhanced. Right. And yeah, and I think that was uh, sort of a, you know, I think I had it in, 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 you know, invested in me from when I was younger about this seeing what I saw. But it took me a while to uh, express that in my own life mm. afterwards. Because I think you just get, shlichas can become all-consuming. For sure. Um, and carving out sort of a, a personal identity on shlichas um, took time. But, but I th- that, I think, is at the core of it, about right. taking um, these learning pursuits seriously, having a plan, right. um, and not just... It not just being, uh, as you say, like a, a a box you tick. Right. Yeah, I mean that that's the story of life, right? I mean, like you you go out of yeshiva, you start something new. You know, maybe you think that it's, it's such a such a seismic change. It's like it's such a seismic shift, where like your daily schedule, your priority list, like everything changes so drastically that it's hard to f- see how does Yeshiva continue in this, right? Like how, how, how do, how's there any through line from that life to this life? And so, so like in terms of format, the format's kind of gone. Yeah, what was the story I remember hearing in Yeshiva, something about how like, there's like a Baal boss who would like, like every time Seder would happen to him, like he would change, he would do something different in his life. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah, but that, that, that sounds like yeah, it sounds silly. I mean, yeah, I, yeah, I have no a, nostalgia. I'm saying like it's not like my not, our whole discussion about Montreal is for me not a nostalgia. I'm not, right. I don't want to go back there. I don't want to go back there. Right. It's not like something that's because idealized past. I feel like um, I'm fascinated by the way that can, you know, engage with my present. Right. I think I learn chassidus now with. Much more maturity, of course, and sensitivity. I would, I would hope so. Yeah. Well, you. I don't think it's a given. No, I would say um, I would hope so, though. I, mean, I, I also hope so, but I don't think it's a given. It's no, something that no. you either some people you either develop or you don't. Right. Precisely. Yeah, I mean, we were talking earlier about my favorite um, cultural critic or writer in general, if I was being honest, um, Christopher Lash, and in many ways, this kind of helped me formulate the idea of homesick for homesick or homesick for Lubavitch because he has this wonderful um, kind of bit in his book that differentiates between memory and nostalgia. And he says, memory is like what you just said, that, that past that's very real. 
that's firmly in the past, but it's integrated into who you are. It informs who you are. It nurtures who you are. You go back there for, 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 for wisdom, for, for connectivity. It's, it's part, it's, 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 it's part of the organism that is life. And it, it, it's, there's, there's, there's healthy connected tissue there. Whereas nostalgia is a place where we escape. He says a wonderful line, nostalgia evokes the past only to bury it. Right? And, um, yeah, I mean, I, and, and so so where does that come from? Like, why does one person remember something, one person be nostalgic for something? It is, essentially boils down to, do you have any connective tissue or not? Like, had you gone back to Montreal after basically abandoning everything and just like wishing that you could go back, you know, like, I wish I could learn, but I, I don't have time or I don't feel motivated or it doesn't talk to me anymore. But I remember the days you would go back with nostalgia. I guess. Most, most probably. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you, but most probably Vaharaya, that's how a lot of people talk. Vaharaya, a lot of people, if only I could be back in Yeshiva, I wish I could go back to Yeshiva. And it's like, okay, nobody in the history of ever has gone back. So I call, I call. <laughs> Yes, but but I'm saying that's nostalgia. Memory is, you know, holding on to the or not holding on to the past, connecting to the past, and then bringing it with you, and that's the most beautiful thing. So you're saying that you you basically started by by something very almost small, like it doesn't seem like you had a whole massive project. You're like, okay, I'll learn Gurus Hashem. Like, who can't learn Gurus Hashem? But then you realize all of a sudden, wait a second, I have this brain here. It works. It feels good to activate it. And then suddenly, there's all these other opportunities, right? Yeah. So I, I, I saw it as, I mean, obviously, I was, I wasn't like I was just doing Purim parties. I was teaching. Right. I mean, I, I, I would teach people serious chassidus from the very outset. I wasn't doing sort of very um, watered down material. Right. I just thought these people are clever. They're in, they're, 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 they're stimulated by ideas. Right. They'd find Hemshech Tovshin Gimel fascinating. Right. Different levels of knots in. Yeah. You know, like, isn't that an amazing Hemshech? Fantastic. I don't know, man. You're my soul brother. <laughs> and not Toshin Gimel. That was the first Hamshik I learned. Yes, yes. And I, I taught it to myself in the same time. Chof Gimel. I love teaching Toshin Chof Gimel, the Rebbe's Hamshik on Toshin Gimel. And look at Hey? Yeah. I think it's that, a that's, fact. Not, that's not Toshin Gimel? Yeah. I never, I guess I didn't realize that. Gimel Dagis and Rotson. So it's, yeah. you know, I just it, felt like. It doesn't talk so much about Akhtar Samachos, so. though. Does it? Or Rotson, like uh, openly it's on Toshin Gimel? Yeah. All right, my bad. I gotta go learn it again. I mean, you, okay, we'll talk about it afterwards. Off um, camera. Off camera. Um, I think you know. I think I found these things fascinating. Toshin Gimel is a beautiful Hampshire. And so Toshin Gimel also just for if the you isolate the ideas, obviously they're not they're going to struggle with the Dibra Maskell and some of the some of the the stylistic of sure. the But if you're able to um, engage them with thinking about how will. Um, and, and pleasure and everything. It's, it, you take like the Maimarim in the beginning, Samach in, 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 in Lech Lecha and Bayera, about right. Tainagar Nuts, right. you know, which is which, which is which, which comes first, right? Yeah. So that's fascinating. Yeah, it's a fascinating pull. So why would I why would I start talking about Freud? <laughs> no, just like no, why would I? You know, that the, the sort of the uh, the marketable chassidus is is actually not as stimulating as that. Why are we hiding the, the Mayanas in that way? So I was always a little bit crazy about what I was teaching people. Um, and I found that engaging and I, you know, I, I gained a lot from the people I was learning with. I mean, these right. are really clever people and they were able to, 
you know, feedback, information. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I'm learning these people and they tell me, oh, this is like in this philosophy, this is like in that philosophy. So I'm starting, I haven't studied philosophy and I'm starting to get like sort of feedback about how this um, aligns, how it's similar, how it's dissimilar. And we were having these conversations about the, the range right. of things. And so I realized that, you know, there's an opportunity here. That if this, they don't speak the language of Chassidus. They right. speak other languages. Right. So I just have to learn, I mean, I speak to them in English. So I'm, it's, it's just another way of, it's just a, a language. It's right. about figuring out um, in the in, in sort of the paradigms that they're familiar with how to communicate. How can I do Afat Sazma Yonas in those uh, in that in that container, so to speak? Mm. And um, so I started, you know, reading a bit more, um, expanding my my ideas, um, and then I started writing. I started um, writing some some essays and some academic pieces. You didn't start with this book, though, right? Because in this no, book, no. You, re- you referred to a few other essays. Yeah, so I did some earlier material um, where I sort of developed my writing skill. I didn't really know how to write. Certainly not academically. That's a whole different language. Sure it's a whole different language. Um, so I had to learn that skill. I mean, I'm still not very good. I still need to... It's, it's a struggle. I find it difficult. Uh, your writing is thankfully understandable. Please, okay. do, not, please do not get more academic than us. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. I'll try. Um, no, but I, I, I'm not saying I have an inferiority complex. I just find it not a pleasurable act to write. I don't enjoy writing. I don't think anybody does. I think some people, they, yeah. that people who are trained to yeah. write from a very early age, they can write and write and write. It just flows. Once they get into the... into the Every writer, into, every every famous writer says they hate writing. But yeah. I don't know, maybe they're, maybe they're lying. Yeah, so I, 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 you know, I, I had to learn a little bit how to do that. Um, and also to think in categories. Like right. I, I, I think that you know, there's there's lots of things uh, in the academic system which are not desirable, or we should seek to replicate them in any way. They're just functions of a an old bureaucracy that just is the way it is. But um, it definitely helped me sort of um, clarify my thinking, um, learning how to create to make arguments that are more solid. Um, and um, yeah, so I found that to be enriching. And it, right. and it opened up doors. It meant, meant that I was engaging with people that otherwise wouldn't treat me as seriously. Right. There's a lot of snobbery right. um, in right. these parts. Sure. And it uh, opens doors. It gives a credibility, um, which you can argue whether, I mean, I would argue that it's, um, it's a failing of the system, that it's not open to people who take alternative uh, routes of education. Do you argue that in the book? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's a flaw in the system. How have people taken to that argument? If you can't beat them, join them. Sort of. How have people taken to that argument? Um, I think that, that you have the people who are open and the people who are not open. It's right. just, I mean, I don't, I don't. It's not really an argument. It's just a, right. a declaration of war. Like you know, this is out of this is out of this is out of order. I I, I didn't feel that I'd spent eight years in yeshiva, um, and attained a certain degree of scholarship, both in nigla and in chassidus, to come here and be looked at as if I was like, had just like, never, never opened a book or like was not, uh, not, not, not a worthy intellectual sparring partner. Right. It's almost like, it's almost like, you know, the famous kind of immigrant story where like you have the guy from Russia who's an engineer and then he comes to America and his degree is worthless and he has to like clean the toilets Mm -hmm. because like his engineering degree wasn't given by the right accreditation society. In the meantime, he's a smarter engineer than everybody else. Right. And so it's like you're saying, come to Cambridge and now all your chassidus counts for nothing. But if you learn a few books by Nietzsche, then you're all of a sudden you're you're, you're a chacham, right? And it's like, 
it's like what's that like it's it, 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 i i learned a body of work it's what i have to say it's very interesting because before i met you and i read this book i wouldn't say i felt it was apologetic but it certainly like because I didn't know you, it sound you are playing under turf. So you like you're constantly having to like justify myself. Justify. So in a sense, it is a it is an apologetic, right? It has to like explain itself, like why you belong here, right? And and so it's 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 really interesting to see how like like you in many ways the book does in a way misrepresent you. No, I'm saying because like the book is it wasn't written, written for it's not, it's not written it wasn't for written for the Bible. No, it wasn't for Lubavitchers. It was written for people who are like skeptical from the outside, and it's, no, it's just interesting to see like how this doesn't like you. It's very clear that this book is is written one way, and you're thinking of it a different way. Yeah, it's very it's very interesting. It's very interesting. You, do you want to do you want to describe a little bit? Um, do you do you feel? Let me ask the question this way: If the book wasn't written for Lubavitchers, and and it's clear that a lot of it isn't, right? Because like no Lubavitchers. Maybe some Lubavitchers heard of Levinas and Derrida. I don't know if any Lubavitchers heard of Kristeva. Or I'm saying like there's a lot of stuff in there that Lubavitchers don't know about and probably don't care about. But is there a part of the book that you feel is for Lubavitchers? Like, is there something relevant to this conversation? Um, I think there's. I would say that. And this is just anecdotal. Uh, I think there are some people who um, study chassidus, study Torah, nigla chassidus, and to a decent level, and they they have an inferiority complex in the wide intellectual world um, because the way that they've learned chassidus has not been so sharp, maybe mm. not so intellectually rigorous, and and maybe they have a good reason to have an inferiority complex. Right. Um, but, and, and, and that can elicit a behavior pattern where they sort of say, oh, it's all nonsense. Oh, I got, you know, like all this academic stuff, they're, they're, they're a bunch of idiots. They know what they're talking about. Right. They, it just, you, you see, they just like act like kids. They, they, they're sort of um, fighting against that. You know, I, you know, I don't want to be kfuyi teva. I, the academy gave me a lot of training um, and understanding of how to think about chassidus in a way that I didn't get from other places. Right. It, it forced me to um, think in certain terms, which I think have been fruitful and helpful in, in, in my Avedis Hashem, in my limited Torah. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to bite off the hand that's fed me. Would Nassim Gurari have benefited from No, academia? I don't think so. I mean, I think he was a superior intellectual. Mm. Um, I think he got there by himself. Because uh, the reason I'm asking is not just to play some kind of a silly... Um, th- thought experiment it's more do you think that for people who do you think it's possible even in extremists for like Lubavitchers who who want to reach that kind of rigor that you're talking about with can they reach it without academia yes yes definitely with it and, and as you say like what is gonna what could be useful within Lubavitch context of what the book's done is it's it's shown I'd like to think the um, the profundity, the insight that the Rebbe Rashab had, such that it's become you know people are for whatever reason are impressed by the broader world and and, and what's 
you know, what's considered important in the broader world, and to be able to appreciate that Chassidus has uh, depth of understanding and insight, um, such that um, it's not to be like, oh, we're better than everyone, we don't, we don't need the rest of the world. Just to, just to put it into that context, just to lift it up as a, um, um, as like sort of sonic substantive. And I think there's a, deep down, when the, the inferiority complex that people have reflects a sort of a, a lack of confidence in Chassidus. Right. It's like the same thing with Torah. In, in Torah in general, like Torah and science debates and all these types of things, like they're scared. Right. They're scared they might be shown up. Right. I, I think people should feel um, tremendous confidence in this body of material um, that we're zeichet to have um, and to go far with it. Not, not just be... I, I think some of the reasons why people learn it in a slightly superficial way is that they don't believe it could... What, what's, the, what's the point of putting the effort in? Right. What are you going to get if you, right. if you dig and dig and dig? What are you going to get? Another gematria? Like what? Right. right. I mean, I, I, I accept what you're saying for sure. Um, it rings true. But I have to tell you that in a way, I, I see something else in the book. You, you, you're saying that the book... I could just tell you what my experience reading the book. I read most of the book and I actually read a big chunk of it twice. Um, what you're saying is that you've heard back that Lubavitch, like Lubavitcher see how impressive or how profound Chassidus can be and that talks to them. And yeah, no doubt some people feel that way. I can see why they'd feel that way. But what, in my experience, I didn't really need anybody to tell me that or not profound. Because I remember having that experience myself when I learned it. Um, what I what I did feel. Do you think one second? Do you think you're from um, the majority of people who have studied Chassidus in that style? Uh, no, if I'm being honest, no, no, no. That's why I'm saying what you said rings true. Right. But my personal experience is that that's not what impressed me. What impressed me was the ability of your ability as an author to take it seriously and to talk about it in an English or in a in a language that. I usually can only find outside Chassidus, right? And and I think that's, I don't know if it's equally as important, but it's also important. Like, I, I think it's great for some people who maybe never had any shiva the experience of like seeing a mimer talked about in a serious manner for them just to see that happen. Yes, for sure. But I think for a lot of people and for those people too, it's also important to not just see that the mimer is taken seriously like, oh, this mimer is really, really special, but that someone can engage with it on a serious level and bear fruit. Like, the mimer can bear fruit. That, I think, also, the mimer bearing fruit can also be, like, chalked up to belief. Like, if the Rebbe said it, it's important. It'll... But what about the fact that you can engage with it and, and kind of tussle with it and come out with something of your own and something profound and something gripping and arresting, like you said earlier? Like, it's something muscular. Like, like, yeah, going back to jujitsu, but I think it's important. I think it's like, I, the reason I keep on going back to that is because I think it's very like when you kind of give the analogy in something so different. That's what a muscle is. Like, yeah, 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 mimers in your head, right? So it's like, what's it mean to be muscular in your head? Well, okay, so it's the muscle is is, is the physical activity that everybody can understand is muscular. You know, my my my, my one of my sons. Uh, so just okay. to finish off the muscle, like everybody can understand. That jujitsu is a amazing body of knowledge, but it's something else when you see somebody engage with it and like, okay, now now I get it. I hear, thank you. I appreciate that feedback. Um, 
one of my sons said to me, um, having read it, that um, um, it's nice to see Chassidus spoken about in English and it doesn't sound stupid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, I feel bad because I don't, I don't want to critique other people who write Chassidus in English, but there's a certain um, stuck in two worlds right. when people are, are writing. And so right. you, could have, you, you can hear them thinking in Hebrew instead of writing when they're writing in English. And so that's what I tried to do um, to varying degrees of success, but I appreciate well, you, you write about it in your book. One of the things that really interested me, even though it wasn't really being a uh, to the actual... I, I don't know if we clarified. This is a book about Hem yeah. Um And uh, the rabbi, story of Rabbi Green Glasses, Bratazakdama, which explains why Ruben's so interested in Ranat in the first place. But the book is about Ranat and how the Rabbi Shab's uh, philosophy, uh, Rabbi Shab's chassidus can speak or has something to offer to the world of philosophy and so on. But... Um, what did I say? Oh, one of the things you talk about is a problem of translation, mm. right? And um, it's actually something that got me in a bit of trouble recently where I suggested that if I was to be asked for a quick fix for the, the Babish, for, for in general, the Yeshiva system, in general, I don't offer for the peanut gallery. Like I think it's silly for me to, but this one actually could be enforced relatively cost-free. I suggested that they start davening in English. Out loud, not not just like in their mind. Mm-hmm. Like that's the language we speak. Articulate yourself in that language. Like learn to articulate yourself in the language that you speak, so that you don't live in two different worlds. This idea that you can just kind of toggle between Hebrew and English on a dime is is not how it works, mm-hmm. right? Because what I- ends up happening is you have people with a very primitive Hebrew and a sophisticated English. When they translate the the primitive Hebrew, or even if it's sophisticated Hebrew, gets translated into a primitive English, and the sophisticated English is only experienced in Dvarim Acher. It's not healthy. That was once a chassid who used to daven. When he would daven, he would translate into Yiddish. That was precisely the story I said when I when I gave that example. I still got in trouble, but it's okay. So what was his vart? He said, well, even in even Bechus Krishna, when you're supposed to speak. That's for Nefesh Bahamis. Yeah. My Nefesh Bahamis was Yiddish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, but Yiddish is okay. English is uh, English doesn't work. So you're saying that, that, that you can toggle between Hebrew and Yiddish in a way that you can't do between no, Hebrew and I'm English? No, I'm saying the critics see the wisdom of that up to the extent of Yiddish. But but English English starts getting kind of touchy. and, and I, and I always encourage my Talmudim, my children. So when I before I was here, I was working in the sifta um i made them yeah down in english that's really interesting so you taught him a sifta before you came here yeah um what would you tell your 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 masifta self not you know if you went back in time or it seems like you kind of left you kind of you're on your way I've out on. i've moved on you're on your way out you weren't there for too long no i've moved on um i don't have an expertise in that i, I mean I have an expertise in anything. I definitely don't have an expertise in that. Right. I think the only, obviously, I homeschooled my kids and stuff. So I, I care about chinuch, um, and I think the, the most valuable thing in chinuch, has been, me on the receiving end, and I've seen the impact of uh, being on the on the teaching end, is actually treating people with respect, um, being treating them as mature people. Right. If you, if you treat someone maturely, they behave more, more maturely. Um, taking someone seriously. I was just recently, um, uh, uh, I went to Toronto 
to Fabreng with the uh, girls' high school. Mm. And it was a very, very engaging experience. And some of the feedback was, um, reflect what it reflected was like, I just didn't look at them as like little girls. I told them as serious people. And this was reflected like in a positive yeah, way? Yeah, they, 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 they appreciated it. They appreciated it. And it sort of, I think at the core of it was, mm. I don't think I said anything particularly interesting no. or extraordinary, but it was just, if you interact with people in a way that you take them seriously, um, it's meaningful, it builds their self-esteem. They, they care about, they'll begin, you could say it's quite manipulative, but they will care about the things that you care about. Um, and I just, I just think it's, a, I think it's a, a polite way of treating people. It's not, I don't think, I don't see it manipulative as all, at all. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's respectful. Yeah. It's respectful. I mean, I, I've been going on this for years. I mean, whoever listened to me before I had a podcast, but I'm saying I've been talking, <laughs> you know, whoever listens to me now, but, but you know, God bless all of you, but, um, I'm just here so people can listen to you a bit more. <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying like, I mean, the, the, this is, this is like right up there. All, this is right up on my list. Like uh, we actually mentioned it earlier in the podcast. It's, it's, it's a cycle. Like when you, when you, when you talk to, when, when you decide a priori that people are not up to it, right? So you give them less, sure. then, then they don't hear anything. Then they're not interested. Then there's no one to talk to. Then you don't give them anything more. And it's like, you, you're, you're caught in this vicious cycle of shallowness. Like a lot of the people you mentioned, there's like a, you know, a lot. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You open up a, a essay on Chassidus or a translation of a mimer and it's like, why do I feel like I'm back in high school? Where is a material that I can read that makes me need to read it again? And with the, with the confidence that, this, that it's worth reading again because I have to process what this writer is writing. Like he's really thought it through. Like, and, 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 and to your point, I think what you find every time that you speak elevated and not elevated pretentiously or arrogantly elevated that i you know i make videos for a living the simple rule of making videos or really any art is you have to appreciate the work that you're making right not because you're the most important person in the world but because if you don't care about this piece and the story that you're telling doesn't talk to you why in the world would you assume it would talk to anybody else if it talks to you, there's a chance it'll talk to other people, right? And you hope that you develop a, a an instinct to know what that it is. But it has to talk to you. So just talk about this in a way that engages you. Don't dumb it down for this imaginary crowd. Try to talk in a way that talks to you and hopefully that elevates the crowd, right? And especially in today's world where we were talking before the podcast about how like it's so hard to get people to come to an event because... They can come to an event or they can watch a video on YouTube of uh, the world's most proficient violinist in a concert. It's like, you know, how it's very hard. Our youth or whoever you're concerned about are swimming in a world of access and ideas. People are talking to them in sophisticated fashion. People are talking to them, making them feel smart. If you're not going to talk to them on that level, someone else will and is, Right. And like, and so much of the paranoia about like, oh my God, people are listening to this, to that. It's an it's 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 a it's a realization that we're not giving out the goods. Like if you were giving, if you believed that this was sophisticated and deep and profound, and you believed that you were communicating it that way, why are you so worried that they're gonna? They got the goods. You've yeah. got the goods. But I think that that this on the part of the people who are trying to. Expressed, exudes, 
you know, sheikhs, there's, there's, you know, it's difficult. And it's, it's, uh, um, it requires a lot of introspection. I, I was very uh, affected by the story of the one of the French shluchim who was translating the sikhs into, into French. And he asked the Rebbe, um, how should go about it? What should be the process of translation? So he said, you learn the sikha, good. And then you should close the book and write it in your own words. Really? And this... How did that story get forgotten so quickly? It's on, it's on one of the gem videos. But I'm saying, like, it's not a practice. And Well, you think like Jonathan Sachs, that's sort of one of the ways he... he his Torah studies, which... No, but I'm talking about in, the, in our circles, it's not the feeling you get when you read a, a translation. For sure. For sure. Um, I mean, it's just thinking about in different, as you say, like thinking in different, I, I was going into a particular direction, talking to people who are familiar with, um, you know, continental philosophy. Right. That was like my audience. I was trying to help them engage with Chassidus. Right. But everyone has to think about their audience. And like just the very act of thinking about your audience is already, uh, you know, that that, that should be a, a a basic expectation, yeah. a prerequisite of how you enter into any sort of fabring and any speaking engagement, any any activity. Right. Um, doesn't matter what I have to say or what I want to say. What do they need to hear? Right. Whatever they need to hear, I have to figure out a way that is meaning can be meaningfully communicated to them. Right. And I think that's my sort of challenge as an educator. What I need to do, and you've got to. I think the. It goes back to sort of the earlier discussion we had about the variety of chassidim and about how people are able to um, really think about chassidus in, in, on their own terms. Mm. And then it, and, and it comes up, it, it then becomes individualized. It's sort of the Zekeli van Vehul rather than Elikei Aviv Menhu type of approach. We have to explain these types of things. So our audience is, uh, is back out. Our, our audience is already four l'chaims in and we're behind. So right. l'chaim. Okay. Yeah, I think that so. so one, one of my inspirations um, in this regard, um, which gets me into a lot of trouble with uh, the more um, hardcore Fakhni of the crowd, is my my obsession, and I would call it an obsession, with Avram Chaim, who is um, who I did some research on before the before the book, and I'm hoping to do more research going forward. Who is Avram Chaim? Avram Chaim was the son of Radatz Chaim, the David Chaim, and he is a, he was a very individual style chassid. When did he live? Uh, 18, 1877 to 1957. So that is from 1877. Tafish Lamad Ches till Tafish So he was born in the times of the Rav He yeah, grew just, up, he was, yeah. yeah, he was a little boy when the Rav when the Rav passed away. He's the same age as like sort of around the Friedrich Rebbe's age, yeah. So he was, he was at any time considered a chassid or a rashab, like he went to, like what's the story? It's complicated. It's probably not the time now to do a whole biography of Avram Chaim. Okay, fine. Uh, the, the sort of, I think the interesting component of of him and why it interjects with this sort of homesick mm-hmm. Vilabavich thing is there are a lot of people who are very uncomfortable with him. He was very ufkaklet. Right. He had his own, his own gang. He was in and out, basically. Oh, he, he was out. He was out. He was out. From the perspective of institutional Lubavitch. right? On the on the on on, on the whole, he went to um, Tehutmin. No, did he considered himself a Lubavitcher. Yeah, he did. Yeah, it's a Chabad. Yeah. Okay, no, I, I yeah, yeah. I've never heard of him. 
Okay. I think that's your point. Yeah. My next book, you'll find your... Your. Right. I'd be happy to come back to Cambridge, but... Hopefully it'll be cheaper. <laughs> but he talks about chassidus in his own shprach, in his mm. own language. Mm. And it's, it's, it's like, uh, it's so beautiful to see somebody who's learned the same books that I've read. So which chassidus is he talking about? I mean, first of all, early, all the Arthur Rebbe, Middle Rebbe, Samachthetic stuff is, uh-huh. for him, normal. Right. Um, but the themes of Chassidus, which he's teaching, or he's writing about, um, they, 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 they're, they're, they're like, they're original. Right. I, I'm reading this stuff. I know this stuff. But I'm reading it in such a style. Right. It's getting me really excited. Yeah, he's a mind now. He, there's a mind now that, like, the same way you read like an author on, on your shelf, and like, right. there's this new mind, right, is now populating your your mind. Like, that's the same thing with him. You're but saying for him, obviously, it's very unattractive to the the people who want there to be such a bittle the Matthias. a monopoly on ideas, and that everyone is just a uh, I don't know, you know, a word from the book. You have this diaphany. You have this like sort of transparency. You just look at someone and you just see the Rebbe's words. You see chassidus. It's like, it doesn't go through any filter. Right. And, you know, I can see something beautiful in that. But is that even on possible? One level, when you talk even... about Rebbe being the Rebbe's typewriter, you know, like that type of um, bittle, I, I, I'm not saying it's not but a, that's not a beautiful thing. But that's not true. It can be a beautiful but thing. But that's not true. Rebiel is not the Rebbe's typewriter. No, but that's what he is. I'm talking, everybody, everybody, I'm the, everybody that listens to Maimon the Rebbe said and sees how Rebiel writes it, how's that a typewriter? I'm not saying he was, but the, the, that's, um, that idea uh-huh. of wanting to just be, you know, the Rebbe's, the Rebbe's, the Rebbe's mouth, the Rebbe's right. feet, Gimel Shvat Toshin Beis, right? Beis Yisrael, yeah. Being like Gimel Shvat Toshin Beis, that goal... That role that you're playing. But they were talking about when the Friedrich could speak, and therefore needed someone to be his uh, mouth. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So we, we are the hands and the feet of the rabbi, the mouth of the rabbi. That's what he meant. But I think for some people, they read that uh-huh. as being, therefore, you're just sort of a, a marakama. Right. You're bottled to the rotten of, of the reichi. Yeah. But, you know, Shliach Isis, Mashiach Isis Shliach with Esakich Zanefesh. This Esakich Zanefesh. Right. This is the struggle. Do your esoteric nefesh come and just become uh, narrowly defined by a set of priorities, or is there something unique about you? Is is there something individual about you that only you can contribute? Right. See, I you know I think when you when you start talking about what was the Alter Rebbe's chiddush of Chabad, but once you start and why everyone was so against it, the other chiddush. Once you enter into Chabad, that means you're you're bringing your subjectivity, right. individuality. Right. So no one. Right. So if we all if we all think differently, right. and we're focusing on Chabad, then what we're actually opening up is a can of worms of people, you know, being different yeah, fragment, and not being identical. Fragmentation. And you know, I see in Chaim. I'm not saying he's perfect. Right. The reason why I like him is because. Is a bit more relatable. I mean, it's you know, it's like when you start talking about you know certain types of chassidim or rebbeim and everything, you don't feel that at- attachment and connection because you realize it's beyond your means. But this is a person who, you know, learned a wide range of stuff and he was able to blend it, integrate it, and meaningfully communicate chassidus in a, in, a, in an inspiring way right. to an audience that otherwise, you know, he was makarim. Uh, who was he writing for? He was writing for the intelligentsia. 
Also, he was like he was like a prelude to some of the Lubavitchers today who write for the write to the academics and so on. He was doing that back yeah, in the day. So he was Makar of Zalman Shazar. Oh wow. He was Makar of Steinsaltz. Wow. He was Makar of all these people. Hugo Professor Hugo Berg, Bergman, wow. Kate Tishirim. He he was able to access people right. because they respected him. Right. He, he must have read other books also that most Lubavitchers wouldn't read. Like he must have right. been. No, he was he was but, it, first of all. Lubavitchers in those days were not as, uh, you know, it, it wasn't, in Radatu's house there was Tolstoy. Right, but but, but you're saying that Lubavitch was more open-minded then? I'm not saying, I, I think those categories don't make sense, uh, being open-minded. Tolerant? The Radatu read Tolstoy. I didn't say Radatu read Tolstoy, I'm just saying in the he house. He allowed it in his house. It, well, look, he, he was lucky to live before the advent of Feldheim Press, so... <laughs> and didn't have a bridge. <laughs> I mean, no, I don't. I, mean, I, 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 I don't want to start I mean, analyzing I mean, what know, books they had you, in the house. You know, you know the you, you know the famous riddle. What time would you rather live in under 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 the czar without Feldheim Press or not under the czar <laughs> without with Feldheim Press? <laughs> oh well, this is why you shouldn't have Lachaim by your by your podcast. I'm just gonna start. Um, no, so see, I, re- I I respect people who are complicated people, and Afal Pikain, they have a deher. Right, like the deher doesn't come from them being parrots. Right, but with 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 all it's of not the inevitable. exposure, it's not inevitable. It's it's not inevitable. There's a there's a ein bemsa. Right, they they could have gone a different way. Totally, and that is that is that is almost to me that is like the foundation. Of the struggle of general identity, like Yiddish identity, because how do you you know you quoted the Shalov Zekeli Van Veu, how do you make the Eibusher yours, without for a moment at least considering him not being yours, like on one hand, like wait am I gonna be a kaifer? Am I gonna throw it off? But if I never have, I don't know. I don't know how that works. I don't know how that mechanism works. Because if I never have a moment of true beginning or true ending of what was past, then how do I have a my own beginning? Mm-hmm. And that that that. And, but are you are you allowed to seek out the ending of of your of the moon that your parents gave you? Like where do you where, where do you end up in that space? Like it's it's such a like how does that work? Like, how do you make identity yours without being a kaifer or a nifer well, or, or a very bad thing, let's say, in between? Like, what's the Ayn Bams? What's the Ayn Bams look like? Well, I think, like, for example, with Chaim, what's fascinating is that it wasn't automatic that he was a chassid of the Rebbe First of all, he had a big father. Right. So he was a chassid of his father. Right. Um, but to become... Oh, which itself begs the question. There used to be people who were Matthiasin, right? Right. But... The idea of becoming Makusha is a choice. Right. So his relation, the Friedrich Rebbe was like his, was, was on, on a, as younger they were, they were they were like a, more like a friend level. They, they right. were both sort of like princes right. in, in, in Lubavitch. Right. No, but what happens for someone who, who doesn't have that situation, someone who grows up in a typical Lubavitch home? I think also like for you, you have a benefit, although I don't want to downplay your journey, you have a benefit where you have a very sharp beginning point. You chose this. Mm-hmm. Maybe you were much younger, and so it's it's not the same as choosing as an adult, but you still chose it. Yeah. Someone who's born into this, always there's this kind of lingering thing where, like, on one hand, 
is this really mine? On the other hand, you know, like, like, you know, what's like, and, and, and they're both valid tightness, I feel like, like, like looking for issues is probably not the best strategy, right? Like, like, no, like, so, they, it's but taking I'm, you 12 episodes to come to this realization. <laughs> No, some people are getting. Is to this me. the last episode? Some, like, some, no, people, no. some people are getting to me, man. No, 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 no. I mean, look, what, what, what some people don't understand is that I, 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 I was never convinced. I'm never. I'm not like convinced that this is the right thing to do. This is the only thing I have to do. So, you know, what I mean, this is this is what I've got. But the question is like, should people look for it? I mean, maybe maybe the answer is that. If you're honest with yourself, inevitably there's some kind of mashbear. Growth entails creative destruction. You know, like you grow up, the ideas of the, or your youth don't last. If they, if the, if you keep them static, anyone who's honest with themselves will find a moment where they feel slightly alienated, right, and disconnected, right, and uninspired. It happens by, it happens by itself. It's, you don't have to look for it; it's there. You have to ignore it. But and, and as we were describing before, that doesn't have to be that. That's humbling. It doesn't right. have to be, uh, as you say, a much better. It doesn't have to be a breaking moment. Right. It can be an inspiring moment. Then, right. oh, now I can see things clearly. I haven't got baggage. Right. I'm starting from a point of where I am now right. with my memories and everything. So what is my journey going to look like? Right. Um, and to continue growing. I mean, I mean, you, you would hope that these points happen at a fairly regular basis. Right. You, you want to, because otherwise, where are you going to get the impetus to grow? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, isn't isn't that also in the Akdama Shayyukhud Vamuna, like um, Shavat, Shavat Sadikam? Mm-hmm. What's the expression? I'm forgetting now. But I, I had a red eye flight. What was it? You also don't? No, I don't have an excuse. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we'll edit that out. But the, the idea is that, like, every time that you climb a level, there's there's a there's an IMBM, so which is I guess the idea there is that that's what you need the chinuch for in the beginning. You need a basis with which you kind of, kind of Don't gives you the, the, wagon. the the tools. Yeah. It's almost like you need the tools to be able to 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 kind of reclaim yourself. Like someone climbing up a mountain, you know, like the mountain climbers. Let's say that entails falling all the time, but they know how to get back up. They know how to fall properly in a way that they can climb again. Um, and yeah, and it seems like. I, I, you, you obviously you don't have the time to go into Rabbi Chayin and I look forward to coming back for the after I read your book on him but you know certainly there is I mean this is something that I've been railing about this whole podcast I mean I hope I shouldn't say the word railing because I hope it doesn't sound like that but it's something that I've that, that's very important to me and I mentioned a few times on the podcast about how there's no question that the chassid used to be more of a a, a topic of discussion at least most yeah, no, but like the struggles of the chassid, like 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 the the chassid wasn't inevitable. The chassid wasn't like we assume the fact like we can assume fate accompli is all gonna he's gonna do what they ever told him. It's all gonna work out, and he's good. And and you know maybe when someone will argue, isn't that beautiful? Like now we're more sure. Or or we've kind of just we've kind of lowered the standards, or we've shifted the standards. There's something beautiful about 
there's something beautiful, something very human about realizing that the chassid is not inevitable, nothing's inevitable, why should this be any different? And only, only a chassid that thinks it's inevitable thinks that it's okay to mail it in with a half hour before davening every week, right? Like, if, if you know it's not inevitable, so you have a choice to make. Mm-hmm. Do I make this real or not make it real? My, I mean, I don't... I'm not trying there, to there, knock the there, half hour... There, but, there are thousands of shluchim on this. I, don't know. I think being on shluchim is helps in that regard. Um, why? Being isolated mm. means you, you much more quickly confront your limitations. Interesting. So the things that you thought were b'derech mamela, right? eventually sort of like sort of go away and you realize, oh, I, I, I thought that was derech mamela. Now I have to work on it. Right. I, I can't take that for granted. Right. And, you know, the more isolated you are, you haven't got like a local community to right. just... Even just davening shachim and chamari with a minion, you know, dressing up as a from Jew helps three three times a day, gives you yeah, just sort of um, keeps you in the zone, which is can be a good thing for some people who need that sort of communal support. But as a shliach, you sort of you're you're confronted with your like with yourself. It's a very individual pursuit. You're on that you're on that desert island. Right. What do you have to take with you on that desert island with you? Right. And you sometimes realize that things that I thought I had aren't real. They were, they, I was just saying them, but I didn't really mean them. Right. And now I have to decide how am I gonna how am I gonna inter- how am I gonna make that pinyin stick? Now I have to stay up at night and write that there are not, <laughs> because that's the thing that that's my that's my dearest chayfets. Like at the mm-hmm. end of the day, all of us to some extent are on a desert island, and how we live on that desert island is determined by the one thing that we choose to have on that desert island. Well, yeah, even people who came to be in communities now live in... Uh, I'm a talking virtual... to myself. I'm talking oh, to yeah. myself. People here. live in a virtual world now. Right. And the implications of technology are that people um, think about themselves in a way of like sort of a, a slightly detached from reality. Sure. And so, you know, I think there's... There's a way in which everyone can possibly relate to that. I, I think Schlich is just, it's a very stark realization of these things. But um, we, have to, we have to confront ourselves and say, what, like, what, what is my pneumius? Like, what, what do I actually really care about? Right. Um, and, you, you know, how long can you keep bluffing yourself that you care about something? Um, I think just being around people, also having to deal with so many different types of people, um, the whole no, no one's impressed with your bluff, right? You haven't got anyone who's going to give you the the street cred. Who's going to say, "Oh wow, look at him! He like slipping, you know, the hats this way and that." You know, not no one cares about anything, right? All of this like cosplaying that you do as a chassid, so you're dressing up as a chassid, and you and it's and it's it gives you no no credibility in the world that you live in, right? So you you eventually move on, and you start thinking, "One second. What are my fundamentals as a chassid? Like, what what matter to me? Um, how do I want? What what am I gonna? How do I want to educate my children? Like, what 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 is real? Right. And I think I think I'm grateful for shlichus. But I'm not saying that was the kavanah shlichus <laughs> for sure. Um, and maybe I'm a bit too preoccupied with that. Yeah. Um, I should be more preoccupied with other people. But I think it gives a person. I think it's one of the tremendous gifts Rabbi gave us. Right. Uh, the opportunity to. Um, Really confront who we are mm. and become become better versions of ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know, I know you said before we began talking that you don't want to talk about post modernity, but I think you kind of stumbled right into it. I mean, 
in my understanding, and I am no expert on this whatsoever, that's my understanding of postmodernity. Like precisely, like if you have to kind of distill what is postmodernity, it's that realization that, you know, if modernity was a rejection of the kind of traditional religion that bound people together, and instead everybody's going to come together through reason, postmodernity was like, no, that doesn't work either. Like everybody is essentially on their own island. Everybody has to deal with their own reality. Everybody makes their own reality. Everybody crafts their own reality. Everybody faces their own reality and shapes their own reality, right? And um, I, I think I think it's so true. I mean, I think, I know you mentioned, you discuss this in the book, not just mention it, but, you know, like, Chassidus very much does, like, when you look at it through that lens, Chassidus is, in that sense, so postmodern. Not postmodern, and maybe the silliness is a postmodernism and the... The, the the attendant nihilism and other stuff that comes with, but but this really, it's like the individual and God. That's all that there needs to be. That's it. That's the whole enchilada. Like like the individual has his God, right? Every it has his Abrister, and that's it. Like we're good. That's why to, we're so terrible at living in communities. We're good to go. <laughs> it's probably true to some level. It's probably true to some level. I mean. I think I think I think on the deepest level it shouldn't be true, but I think like I think it makes sense, right? Like, um, it makes sense. Where like you know like you're 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 grappling with these kind of things. It's hard to, I think even one of their bay mentioned like, like sometimes because you didn't like because the is like like think about the Irish the whole day like they're missing the premise of the of the tumistic yid who just comes to show and davens. like. You're too busy grappling with Madrigas and and Aaron Safe, and like so, minion becomes less, less, less valuable, less precious. Like, I think I've, I've I've also felt that, you know. The activities on Schlichus, you want to attract everyone, and you realize like, what am I selling? I'm just, I'm selling individuality. Right. And there are some people who want community. Right. And I've had to sort of learn how to try and be a bit more communal, just because right. that's just like a, a need that people have. Right. But I don't think. Ideologically, that's what I'm selling. Right. I, ideologically, I'm trying to sell that Bishvili never and Lama never Adam Yechidi, and we have to figure out what does it mean if you're the only person in this world. Yeah. Is there a point of view? Does your Yiddishkeit make any sense if you're the only person in this world? It's so fascinating that you bring that up. I mean, my favorite. I know you. I know you mentioned that you love their shimis as much as you've learned them or understand them, but they love their shimis. Um, I also do, and my favorite shima by far. And I and I'm no I, I didn't cover all the Rishimis, but from the ones that I've learned, my favorite by far, I think it's in Kravitz Memhe, I, I don't know. But it's it's about Lama Nivral Mikhidi and called Mash Kumashbakashrachal. Are you familiar with what I'm talking about with all the underlines? And basically never like develops a kind of like thesis. It's very interesting. It's like a mathematical thesis almost like one leads to two, two leads to three. And basically the the, the outcome is if if everything if 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 everything was created for reason, and not just everything, but every happening and every every encounter and every and every 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 circumstance was created for a reason, and that reason is to 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 make this world the way the Eibusha wants, and so through Torah mitzvahs, so then anything that he encounters. His own individual realities, own individual circumstances that no one else can experience besides him or her, 
that is created by God. And at that moment, it's only him and God in the world alone. And it's up to him to see how does this moment lead to terimitsis. I mean, that's the most existentialist, postmodern idea you could get. Atkdekach, that there's a brackets there, where the Rebbe says, and this that you care about another Yid is not really because he exists, because you're in the world alone with God, but because the terror commands you to care about the other Yid. And that could sound like very like cold and harsh, like well, we, we can't have camaraderie, but it's almost a realization that on some level, there is at least a side of us that's very alone in this world, an existentialist, like we're, 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 we're trapped in our own reality that nobody else can fathom. We're all very alone. And the way through that, oh, the way out of that loneliness is, I guess according to this, the only way out is through a connection to the Abishir, right? And ultimately, I mean, it rings true in Chassidus in general, but, mm-hmm. but it, it does kind of bring out a different flavor, right? Yeah, so you can about, go in different directions. So you're talking, yeah. about, you're talking about the community that you build as a necessity, like only because, the, you know, like the community that you build, like B'dyevid, like <laughs> because like you need to. It's like, it, it reminded me of that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I do want to... What, what do you bring to a community? What do you want a community to be? A community is not the, the way that you flatten everyone else. Right, of course not. It's... You want people to have something that they're bringing. And I, I think all of us individually, we, I mean, I want to be part of a community. Right. But I want, you know, I, I want to play a role that is useful, purposeful, meaningful. Right. Um, and can contribute. Well, that's the whole tension of community. That's the word super, right? So they can be in your Rishayim. Like, is that really a community? Like, how do you have a community? And like, the, the kind of the analog that people talk about a lot today, in, at least in America and from communities, I imagine this is true in, in to a large extent in England as well, it's like only in the from communities do you still find that you'll have in the same community on the same block very, very wealthy people and people that can't put food right. on the table. Like most of the world has segregated itself economically and the from community insists on having a community with these kind of extremes which causes all kinds of chaos. Right. Because people feel pressured to live up to the Joneses and so on and so forth. It's very, there are reasons to separate economically and the from world does not accept that. And there's something very beautiful about that, but there's also an immense amount of pressure that's created as a result. That's the tension that we're talking about. Like you have individuals and you don't, we're not communists, hopefully, right? But at the same time, we believe in community despite the differences of the individuals, which actually brings me to my next point is that there's this, you know, we're talking about individuality. You're talk, you brought up Rabbi, Rabbi Chain and, and and the kind of the, the model of an individual from back then, you know, People, people have asked me, okay, so you've been doing this podcast for a few months, talking about Lubavitch identity. Like, so, so what's the answer? No, what's the answer? You know, what is Lubavitch identity? And at the risk of sounding like I'm deflecting, I, I, I come back to it with, a, with an image, a new image that I, that I think about, which is in the past, I used to think of, you know, the fragmentation of Lubavitch identity as like, you know, an egg that fell off a wall and, and broke, or like Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. We're in England now, all the king's horses, all the king's men could not put Humpty Dumpty back together again. And like you have these shells of an egg splattered all over the is that place. Gonna be, is that going to be the name of the, of the, the episode? What's that? Humpty, Humpty Dumpty? Dumpty? Maybe. <laughs> not bad. Not bad. But I'm saying all the eggs, you have the shells splattered out, splattered around, the yolk is just oozing out and kind of 
seeping into the mud. And it's a very dispiriting, sad kind of story. Like, okay, so that's what you're saying about fragmenting, and basically everybody's just broken shells, and the essence is kind of just falling away. But the more I think about it, the more, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think this is something that's brought in Lvarov or maybe Sokosteshvul. It's been many years. No the idea... Is there, what's after Lvarov? It has been many years. There's something there about... Like when 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 like when when the 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 a pure or air is mischalik, like like the, the, the it's trying to explain how there's ischalkos without ischalkos, like the the pshit in the ischalkos. So I think of like a meteor that explodes, it collides with some force in nature, and and it explodes, and there's there's also a fragmentation. There's also an explosion, right? There's a bunch of many pieces, millions of pieces flying all over the place. But even though that's been shattered, each one of those pieces is hurtling millions of miles an hour in some direction, full of energy, dangerously. It could ignite the whole world on fire. And I think more and more that that's, ultimately, that's individuality that Chassidus sets us up for. Like, it's in a, like that's, that's, what, that, that's, that's how it works. Like, there is no way to have... You cannot have it both ways. You cannot have a common identity that that's also full of all this fire. It just breaks apart. Yeah, that's why I... I, I does does, that, image, I'm, does I'm, that image ring true to you? See, I, that's why I think I'd push back against this sort of this idea that there, there, there is this uh, something that's lost, something that we have to sort of recapture, something we have to figure out. Um, the diversity, which you're... You call us like a, you know, an omelette or... A, uh, a meteor, whatever metaphor you're going to give, is is showing the potential of how chassidus can develop in different ways. Um, now, that's much more risky and um, confusing for a lot of people because they want to create this collective. But if we embrace, you know, if you if you educate people and you infuse with them the ideas of Tanya um, and the rest of chassidus, they're inevitably going to some at some point think for themselves. Right. And when that happens, who knows what's going to happen? Right. And when we see it happening, we can't start complaining when we we, we sort of drip feed into their mother's milk right. <laughs> these radical ideas of Tanya, right. um, of individuality. Um, and, you know, everyone has to find their chilek and tayra. So this, this like, um, it's, it's pushing and pushing and pushing this theme um, about Zekeli. This is my, you know, the, uh, Pnimius. Right. Something's Pnimius. You know, it's only my pneumonia. No one else has it. Um, it's been this chalik, it's been it's been this gabble in me, but pneumonia. That's what Chabad want pneumonia. That's what that's what we're trying to get people to do. And all of a sudden, someone says, "Okay, I'm going to be a pneumonia. I'm going to be just like my. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be me." Right. And then everyone, oh no, don't. <laughs> we didn't mean at We didn't mean so much. We didn't mean it right. Um, and there's going to be, I mean, these ideas, and we've seen in the history of Chassidim. Not everyone stayed within a very narrow frame. Um, it's got the potential to be very disruptive. Right. And um, if we're just going to hold on to this vision that everyone's going to, uh, you know, identify in this very um, particular way, then we're going to have to take out some elements of chassidus from the curriculum because we, we, you can't. It's not fair to teach people. Um, this level of radicalism. Right. And at the same time, say, don't step over this line. 
Right. We've, so we've told people to think for themselves. Use your Chabad. Right. Um, but no, not not if it not if it says that. Come on, this is this this is the it's this so is the dangerous. It's so, it's so true. It's so true. I mean, so much. Like when you think about you know the same Christopher Lash that I was talking about earlier, he talks about the same way that he t- separates between memory and nostalgia. He separates in the like flipping it to the future, the difference between hope and optimism. Like optimism is to him like the same thing as nostalgia. Like the the past right. is the past is artificial. The future is also make believe. Like you know optimistic. If, if if X happened, then Y has to happen. Then Z has to happen. And then we're worried if it doesn't. Hope is a, a deep-seated conviction of someone who is connected to the past in a healthy way that even if things don't work out, I'm, st- I'm still going to live. I'm still going to figure something out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you think about the future, I, I think like, you know, someone asks, are you optimistic about the future of Lubavitch? Well, I don't know, even know what that means. Like, based on what? Like, do we have... Do we have a, do we have any like um, example of this happening before? Like based on what would I be optimistic? Based on the number of Chabad houses? Okay, perhaps, but is that the whole story? So I don't know if I'm optimistic. I don't know if there's reason to be optimistic. There's a lot of problems. Am I hopeful? I see a lot more reason for that. Right? Because hopeful is like, are there are there goods here or are there not goods here? Like, is there is there something deep that can last? I say for sure. I believe there can be. I believe there is. So, but hope is a lot more risky. Hope is a lot more understands that things are not going to just play out in a straight line. It's going to be messy. Right. That's why I like the 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 image of the explosion. It's not pleasant. It's not. It's not. Um, it's just not. It, it, it's 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 risky. It's it's it's, no, it's I chaos. Back, I go back to your previous episode with your brother, which I found very moving, in that um, he made choices. Right. But it was deeply inspired. It wasn't in spite of his upbringing, but right. it was because of his upbringing. Right. At the end, you're saying, yeah, it was a very moving thing to hear from him. And I think that's. Um, people have to be open to what the possibilities are. There's mm. legal possibilities. Right. And, um, you know, it's a risk. Chabad is a risk. This is something I always, I had to like chip on my shoulder a little bit. Being a Baltruva from the right. from the nuns. Like, like an, uh, the time when I became Baltruva, was like, Chabad was like a cult. Right. Especially in the Mashiach sort of phase. Right. People were like, these people are, you know, really, you know, culturally. By, by, by cult, you mean that they were practicing cult behavior? You mean that people no, saw them as a cult? Just people outside of the Bible. Saw it as a cult. Yeah, they, they just saw them as like dangerous people. Like right. they're just like dangerous ideas. Not, right. be, not because I, I, you know, I can critique that. I think that was just part of the, the narrow-mindedness of mainstream Judaism. But I'm just saying culturally, to, right. to get involved with the Bible in a very overt way, um, was, Came at a cost. Yeah, I think like now with sort of Chabad is much more popular. You've got right. seatings, you've got right. uh, Chabad on campus. Right. I mean, people people don't to self-identify as being associated with the damage yeah. is not so um, risky. Risky, and then risky or risky. Yeah, <laughs> and then also when you as a Baal Shuvah, it's become much uh, in a lot of ways. It's become slightly more Balabatish. 
in uh, what you've been what you're being um, integrated into. You're not being integrated into the type of Fabrengans that I was going to as a, like a 13 year old kid right. hearing people uh, Fabrengan like right. commercial costumes, right? Right. I think it's about a lot more sanitized, right? Um, for a lot of people, and I always had this chip on my shoulder, like if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, you need you need to there needs to be a cost. Right. A cost. Yeah, it, man. It doesn't hurt. Yeah, it? man. I'm with you. And so I, I think I've grown out of that. Um, and I think that, um, but I still think we need to sort of recover this sense in which this is dynamite. This material, Chassidus is doing something radically different. It's not just, you know, if you, if you study academically, it just like becomes, uh, you know, incorporated into a form of Gnosticism or right. um, Neoplatonism. And, and people will just rationalize it down to sort of a nothingness. But anyone who's sort of got a little bit to the heart of it all realizes that it's transformative right and it's uh it's difficult it's uncomfortable and we need to like reignite that embrace that and then realize that you know when somebody is uh we're not giving people mainstream judaism right we're giving them you know we're giving them something radical and alternative and it's good it's it's not the world as you know it right and you know when, when people are exposed to that you know you know, not everyone's going to come out like Rabbi Akiva. Right. Some people are going to go a bit crazy. Some people are going to become heretics. That's what happens. Right. They, this is why the Rambam said, you know, Mir Levuchim is very careful. Not everyone should be studying this stuff. Right. And we all of a sudden open up to everyone. Now, if you learn it properly, for sure, everyone's going to be like yeah, Rabbi Akiva. I mean, but um, we, we've got to be honest that if, you, if, if, you expose, if you're exposed to these ideas, yeah. you can, it, it can lead to crazy outcomes. Yeah, I, I, I look. I mean, we're kind of agreeing with each other here. I mean, it, if you translate it in a way that no one understands it anyway, right? Then no one's going to get harmed because no one. I don't. I don't. Yeah, I don't know so, where so the look, anyway. look. Look, if you want to be like more sociological about this, it's kind of normal that you see. You'll see like a company, let's say, that's like radically innovative, and the entire culture is about innovation and disruption, but then they succeed. And now they are the ones being disrupted against, right? So the culture gets lost of innovating and now the, the, the goal is protection. And very often the CEO or the founder who brought them up to the second level is replaced by someone who's, who's better at protecting and kind of consolidating. And I think, I think if one had to describe like, like how did Lubavitch go from being disruptive and chaotic to being so like risk averse and like conservative and like static right it's probably because if, if I think in a way this is a compliment this is probably because of the success right when so when, when it grows to a place of stability in the sense that like people always like to bring out look how many Chabad houses are out there look how many kids are there in the yeshivas and so on you come to a place where you're like okay we don't need to fight anymore now every child that we lose is a loss like we're not going to get any better Right? There's no point of innovating anymore. We, 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 got, we got where we needed to. Now the goal is to make sure we don't lose. Like the, the, People will say, it's easy to make the money. It's harder to keep it. Right? And so there's that kind of mentality where like, we've made the money. Now let's not lose it. And the problem, really it's a problem for these companies. Usually when the company goes into that cycle, it's only a matter of time before they're, they're dead because you can't play defense. Right. Like that's a guarantee to eventually lose. Exactly. Nobody wins by playing defense, only playing defense. 
you'd have good defense, but you also have to have a proactive goal. And it seems like it seems like there's a lot of like risk averseness. We're just we're like you know, and and I understand it. And it's also like, and also, yeah, and, and also, and also, the the problem also is that like once you are not so risk averse, so now like, are you sure that everything that you're doing is for doing for the right reason, or because other underlying motive motivations? It's like it's easier for for the individual also to kind of say, well, I know that this is this is pure, let's say, but again, that goes to being risk averse. You're not going to get anywhere being that way. You've got to test yourself. You've got to see. I'm going to do something. I believe it's for the right cause. Sometimes you find out. Like, if I'm doing it for the right reason, I'll keep on doing it, or the results will be good. If I'm doing it for the wrong reason, I will find out. I have to, I have to learn myself. How, how can we be sure that we're so settled and we're so figured out already? It, it boggles the mind. But I think if you, I think one statistic that stands out for me, I know there's lots of societal reasons why the world is different than the way it was 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago. But with the huge expansion of Chabad houses, right? Chabad on campuses. How comes there hasn't been a, a, a similar expansion of Balit Shuvah Yeshivas? Or just Yeshivas, period. Well, I'm just saying, like, you know, you'd expect right. um, just it should multiply, and it doesn't. Yeah, but even Yeshivas, period. Even Yeshivas, period. Because, like, there already you're talking about a secondary result. Like, you're talking, yeah, I, and I understand what you're asking, but I feel like, I feel like you're making a, a sharper critique. And, and I take that personally as well. I know, I know in sort of the 20 years of Aishinichas how, you know, things were different at the beginning than they are now. Right. In that regard. And it's a, I think it's a Cheshman and we're going to have to make. Are we, you know, are, are we communicating chassidus to such an extent that people would be willing to make such a radical right. move right. Um, and change their life for it? Right. Or are we giving them something that's comfortable, um, that's something they can incorporate into their existing lifestyles? And are we selling them short because we're doing that? Now, we may be, we're reaching more people, right? probably. Right. Um, we're having a meaningful, I'd like to think we're having a meaningful impact on a lot of people. Mm. But there's something about the, the radicalism that we've uh, reined in a little bit. And yeah, it's a question I ask myself. But I'm, I, I, I want to pick up on something, on, on an omission on your part. I'm, uh, I think maybe. Uh, yeah. Am I allowed to do that? Of course. Um, um, that you've picked up a lot of themes in the book, but one of the themes you haven't picked up on is, is gender. Gender. And it's, um, I think that's one of the, the battles of our time, especially within a Lubavitch identity. Mm. Um, and it's not directly discussed in the book, but it's, I think it, it's a good starting point for a discussion about um, creating an environment where there's equal access to meaningful chassidish experiences, right. such as limit chassidus and darkie chassidus, to uh, female chassidim, right. just like men um, um, have access to. Mm. And there's a structural element in our, in our environment where that, that's just not... And, you know, a lot of the the themes we've talked about is mainly about the male experience. Right. The male experience of feeling alienated, the male experience of feeling inspired or euphoric or just this male experience. And um, one of the things you realize when you leave yeshiva is there there, there are also... There's, there's a whole other side to this. There's 50% of our community um, don't have these experiences. Well, it's 75% of my family. I got three girls. Uh-huh. Okay, there you go. And one boy. Um, and the... 
responsibility for those of us who um, have been zeicher to various experiences to widen access. And it's not about making uh, sort of an egalitarian system, but just to have a, a, the opportunities for people who want it and to not create, and like, you know, I talk about these things quite a lot for different people and this, you see the resistance and the resistance is quite, uh, I don't think it's intellectual. It's very uh, visceral. Right. Well, I think it comes from the same place. I mean, and I, I want this platform just so we can, it should, it should be, uh, you wanna, it should you, be aired. If we're talking about the Lubavitch identity, absolutely. we have to talk about the Lubavitch identity absolutely. of the whole community absolutely. and not just um, disgruntled by Okay, no, look, uh, first of all, that's a fair critique. Um, it's a fair critique. I, I don't think it's really a separate topic. I think I think it all comes down to are you if if you're risk averse, you want to keep things the way they are, and so you'll tolerate, you know, if girls learn Tukotisiches or whatever or Tanya up to now, they can teach about learning that. But for a girl to let's say learn or not, that's not what they did. That's not what they should do now, right? I mean, I think there has been over the past few years like more girls going to seminary learning my modern. But I understand what you're talking about. The idea of girls. I mean, I have three daughters, like I said. My first three children are girls. Um, you know, do I see in them the potential for them to be uh, uh, engaged in the way I see my four-month-old son? No, I don't. I have to like, I have to tell myself that they could be if they want to be. Um, so, but I think that comes down to like risk averse. Like, do we stay? Do we stay to how things always were? Or do we open ourselves up? This, meaning, if you let Bakram flourish in their own way, inevitably you'll let girls flourish in their own way like it's all the same kind of captivity or the same kind of like 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 staying in lockstep to the past that that kind of it just happens to be that Bachram are the ones learning in the past so they're learning now but as we've been discussing not necessarily are they really engaging anyway but really the main answer to the to the mission is more, more because I, I don't know if it's my place to talk on behalf of the female Lubavitch experience. I mean, I'm comfortable and I'm happy to talk to different women, but I don't know if this is a platform. I, I don't know if they're as comfortable. There's certainly... You don't want to be mansplaining, you're saying? I mean, I can mansplain as good as the best of them, but, you know, I mean, like, I don't know if anybody's going to appreciate it. <laughs> like, I'm going to appreciate it. And, like, I, like, I'm, not, I'm not here to, like, be the mouthpiece on behalf of the frustrated Bacher, and I certainly don't want to be the mouthpiece on behalf of people that have a very different experience than I do. I would hope, maybe, that some someone uh, is encouraged, you know, a lady or, or a, a younger girl to, to start their own podcast and explore from their side. I think there is some, I think yeah, there's yeah. Some, something happening there. It's all good. I'm just saying it was a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a major theme of the book. Well, uh, so the, 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 the title fine. of the book is The Philosophy of Rabbi Shalom in Language, Gender, and Mysticism by Reuven Lee. Just so that we don't omit anything from the title, I'm not covering up anything. Good, okay. I'm not covering anything, but I, I just, just I feel like uh, just to close the conversation and bring it full circle to, to what we've been discussing, it is Chav Kislev, Russia is still part of Russian Chassidus, and thinking about it now, to me, it's a new understanding of Russian Chassidus, where what's Russian? Russian is a new beginning. It's a scary time. And that's in you know we learn in Chassidus that Leo Rashon's the whole world is hanging on by a thread, right? Both in will it be renewed and also the renewal is a, it's it's chaotic it's scary like every, all the familiarity is gone and now it's a new almost like a new melech a new a new beginning and like everything's thrown out start anew. 
And I mean, what what is Rosh Hashanah if not a a a a celebration of the disruption that Chassidus created, but also the disruption that it continues to have and continues to be disrupted itself. And of course, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not advocating, and I certainly don't think you're advocating f- for like people just to go on their merry way and do whatever the heck they want. But like you said, ultimately it comes down to trust. Chassidus is, is trusting in us to be able to learn these things and do something with it and to be empowered to do something with it in our own way. And that's what we celebrate. Chaim. Chaim. Thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. Shana Teva. Limit Chesidus. Dark Chesidus. Amen. Chaim. The music for this podcast comes from the album Repentance Doors by Oren Sor Nadav Bachar and is used with their permission.